On this episode of Emerge, I'm joined by Zach Stein. Zach is a writer, educator, and futurist working to bring a greater sense of sanity and justice to education and beyond. Zach joins me on the show to speak about his recent paper in the Integral Review entitled Love in a Time Between Worlds on the metamodern return to a metaphysics of eros. In addition to the paper, we talk about the Anthropocene and its relationship to the metamodern historical moment we find ourselves in, why metaphysical questions are impossible to escape, and why those who bring coherence to these sorts of inquiries will be stepping into the future in a profound way. And if you're enjoying the show, there are at least three ways to show your support. You can leave a review on iTunes or any other podcast surface, share episodes you enjoy on your social media feed, or with friends who you think might benefit from the conversation, or by becoming a patron of the show by clicking on the link in the show description. Thanks, everyone, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. This time on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Zach Stein. Zach, welcome to Emerge. Uh, thank you, Daniel. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and so, um, Zach, I think I first encountered your work through the Neurohacker Collective podcast, where you did an interview with Daniel Schmachtenberger, I think about like the nature of intelligence. Totally. or something like that. And and I just remember it just completely blowing my mind and, and you know, really feeling um, a lot of resonance just with the kind of like ethos and, and way of thinking that I felt like you were sharing in, in, in that conversation. And so I subsequently like found your website and read, I think, every piece of your writing that I could get my hands on. And, and uh, that's a journey that I highly suggest anybody listening to this goes on. I think I learned quite a bit and, and felt quite inspired by the eloquence and clarity with which you understand and I think try to speak about the unique time that we're in, that you use this word, which I've, I've seen elsewhere, but I, I hadn't really kind of grokked what it meant until I, I read, read your work uh, of the, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but the Anthropocene. Right? Is that is that the right pronunciation? Right. I've I've heard it actually pronounced a couple ways. I've heard what you said. I've heard what you said, and then also the Anthropocene. I've heard it said okay. that way. And being a dyslexic, which you know because you read from my website <laughs> all the errors, I actually don't know which is the correct uh, correct pronunciation. Um, but right it's the, yeah. So I say Anthropocene. Um, okay. And so this idea, um, and and. Uh, in this in this conversation, you know, my hope is to use that concept of the Anthropocene uh, to help place ourselves in a kind of historical moment, and then um, go on to talk a little bit about your one of your I think your most recent um, piece of published writing that's all about the need to build a new metaphysics for the time we're in, and, and specifically around uh, Eros and what that might mean to kind of conceive of humanity in a, in a new way. And, and so we'll get into the down and dirty with that. But 
first, if you could just share a little bit about like what is the Anthropocene and, and why is it important that we kind of place ourselves in it and what does it mean to be alive during it? Right. Um, it's actually a fascinating way to frame our current historical epoch, although the Anthropocene technically is not a result of historiological like periodization, right? It's actually a term that comes from the sciences, not from history. Although it characterizes our historical moment, it's actually about the state of the geological substrate itself, which mm -hmm. is to say it's about the state of the earth as a material system. And so geologists and atmospheric chemists are the ones who, who coined this term. And you can kind of Google the term, of course, and, and see the, the precise history. And you can see also the other names for the other large geological epochs. And so these are ways of understanding the evolution of the earth as a whole. <clears throat> and prior to the Anthropocene, the way that we have described the nature of the evolution of the earth as a planet um, has not been with reference to a dominant mammal. <laughs> mm. And so the, anth the Anthropocene, as you can tell from the, the prefix, uh, it has to do with the, the human. And essentially what the Anthropocene says is that we've reached a point in the evolution of the material planet itself when the actions of a single species are being dubbed, uh, essentially named as the marker of a new geological epoch. And now, and now geological epochs are huge of huge duration, right? Mm -hmm. Like huge, we're talking geological timescales into the billions and hundreds of millions of years. And so to say that we are starting a new cycle of that length of duration, which is to say that humans have had such an impact on the, on the, on the planet itself uh, that the next billion years or the next hundreds of millions of years of the planet will be defined in terms of what humans do. And now that's an incredible pivot in cosmological evolution, right? Um, <clears throat> so this is a point that you can imagine uh, kind of harkens to a new type of responsibility for the human. Um, and it is caught up in the historical um, and cultural dynamics of this kind of very late stage uh, global capitalist uh, civilization. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look to the work of someone like um, Jason Moore, who wrote this incredible book called Capitalism and the Web of Life, he, he's probably the where, where I would point someone if they wanted to read about the Anthropocene. He actually wants to call it the, the Capitalocene. Mm. <laughs> right? his, his point is actually that when you look at the markers, the, you know, the physiological markers or the atmospheric chemistry and the nature of the geological substrate, uh, those things which you find there are the ex externalizations of the capitalist world system since about you know the the 1600s and so it's what it means is that there are remarkable things afoot with the very nature of the human's relation to the material world and to the biosphere in particular um, and that uh as I said, it's a new responsibility for our actions, but it means we also need 
new frameworks, mm-hmm. new, new modes of imagination and ways of understanding our relationship to the earth. Cause it's not like it used to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's very importantly different and it has an implication, uh, both on our actions, responsibility and on our, uh, self understandings. So it means yeah. that we're a new kind of human. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and one of the new frameworks that I've been playing with and that we've been exposed to on this show is metamodernism. And I know that's also uh, a framework that you've been using and exploring too. And I'd be curious now that we have this kind of idea of the Anthropocene, um, what's why metamodernism? Like, what's your take on that? Um, how? What's its relationship to this new responsibility that humans suddenly find themselves with? Totally. Um, I'm glad that metamodernism has been on the on the show. It's a it's an interesting uh, kind of cultural movement. So, in essence, metamodernism, I would say, has to do with the practice of historiological periodization, which is to mean mm. the, the creation of historical periods. And this is what something historians do. Um, that's very important to do. That's part of the way we tell the narrative of where we've been is to say, just like you do with your personal life, oh, there's childhood, there's adolescence, there's that time in California, you like create these <laughs> periods of your life. So do historians with uh, cultural evolution. And so, you know, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, et cetera. And so I see metamodernism as actually an appropriate placeholder for what will be a term retrospectively given to this historical moment, which is to say that we are, with the birth of the Anthropocene, not just entering a new geological epoch, but also a new historical epoch. Mm. So uh, one major history has ended and a new history is beginning. Mm. And so this is why I speak of living in a time between worlds. Mm. Um, and this is also why I talk about return to metaphysics. Mm. So what metamodernism marks is the exhaustion of modernism and the inevitable complexification and transcendence of the kind of frameworks and behaviors and systems of, of the modern. Mm. And we're mostly now in what's been, what's been called a postmodern kind of moment which is, in a sense, the, the disintegration of modernity before its metamodern reintegration. So you can, you can see postmodernity as a new epoch, but in fact, when you look at its characteristics, and this is a point made by many people, including postmodernists, um, like Foucault and Habermas, they, they would say essentially that actually postmodernism is modernism on steroids. Mm. <laughs> uh, it is not <clears throat> a novel. It is actually playing out many of the worst implications. Uh, it's kind of the shadow side or the photographic negative of modernity. It's not properly something new. The metamodern uh, brings enough complexity and can critique and embrace both the postmodern and the modern. And so that's just has to do with history and time. Only today <laughs> or within the past couple of decades have there been identities and cultural constructions that could be critical or embracing of both the postmodern and the modern? Mm. It's possible just in terms of the sequence of the unfolding of time. Now that's a possible position. You can critique both the postmodernists and the modernists, and you can and you can praise both the postmodernists and the modernists. You don't have to pick one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so 
kind of picking both and picking neither is picking something new. And that's essentially what the metamodern is exploring. And it's important to say exploring. <laughs> like there's nothing figured out. In mm -hmm. fact, what we figured out is basically about what I've said, that, that we've exhausted modernity mm -hmm. and the birth of the Anthropocene is some of the evidence of that. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, if we continue with what we've been doing since the long 16th century and the beginning of the modern world system, uh, we will self-destruct. Mm. Um, that, that's clear. Uh, so the metamodern uh, embraces all of the critiques of postmodernism <laughs> and yet also uh, embraces all of the best moments within modernity. So it's actually a quite complex position. Um, and there are other things to say about it. It's mostly been elaborated, I believe, in the areas of aesthetics. Um, and some work is being done actively in, in the political arena. Uh, but there's, of course, many other places where work needs to be done from a metamodern perspective. Um, right. And there are many candidate metamodern theories emerging. So like critical realism, object-oriented ontology, uh, object-oriented ontology, integral theory. Um, uh, many of these are, you know, uh, archetypal psychology is a great one. That's a, that's a metamodern example of what psychology could look like. And so you're getting these forms and eventually there'll be some more appropriate label that doesn't include modern as a part of it <laughs> you know, because it's like how many prefixes can you add to to modern postmodern metamodern so there's a where that's again this it's this time between worlds we can't we don't even know the name of our historical epoch yet and yet we're living in it <laughs> yeah yeah okay and so um this is a question that has come up as we've explored metamodernism on this podcast, and I think you you might be in a, in a unique position to kind of shed some light on it, which is uh, a lot of people hear metamodernism described and and see it as a kind of like uh, new integral or a competitor with integral. And I, I guess I'd just be curious to hear you uh, explore a little bit, like what is the relationship between integral and or integral theory and metamodernism, if, if to the degree that you understand it. Yeah, I would, as I just implied, place integral as a species of metamodern theorizing. And in fact, there are many examples of forms of metamodern theorizing, just like there are many types, there are many artists who practice metamodern forms of aesthetic. Mm. Um, and uh, so like Roy Bascar, Ken Wilbur, Benito Roy, you know, there's there's a set of these people who are doing metamodern theorizing. So I see it as a much more general category than integral. Mm. Um, okay. and, and in fact, precisely because I see it as a historical epoch, you know, so so a lot of what's actually happening right now in culture, which from an integral perspective would be seen as radically not integral, mm. <laughs> which is to say not second tier, all quadrants, all level lines, et cetera. It's not that. And yet it is metamodern because it's happening now. Mm. Uh, and that's important to grasp that we're living in a metamodern water now. And so with the metamodern theorists and aesthetic uh, practitioners and, and politi politicians are doing is trying to make that water visible so that we can begin to swim differently. I'm just kind of stretching the metaphor. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Ken Wilber was able to, at, in the 90s, bring together in this book, Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, a sweeping metamodern vision, which is to say, embracing and critical of both postmodernism and modernism. 
right? Uh, and so that makes it metamodern. But there's other ways to do that with different style, you know, like William Irwin Thompson, for example, I would categorize as metamodern. And yet he's much more poetic and aesthetic than Ken Wilber. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, again, I see it as this broad new historical epoch. Um, and, you know, there are still, for example, even though people, they're living in the metamodern historical epoch, they're still doing modern or postmodern theory. Mm. So that's what's at, but they're just, it's kind of, and now it feels like, you know, that's boring or exhausted or irrelevant or actually causing, causing more problems than good. Mm -hmm. Like doing hardcore, only critical postmodern theorizing now, uh, it, it's kind of like, man, we need to be constructive, mm. not just deconstructive. Um, mm. and so that's in a sense, the metamodern is that turned towards reconstruction. Mm. And that's what, that's what also makes people nervous about it. Because it's 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 putting you know it's 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 putting an end to to the endless critique, which is what postmodernism is structurally as a structure. It's, it's endless critique. It's not positioned to reconstruct. And so again, there are going to be many attempts at reconstructive reconstructive approaches, um, and uh, in many different disciplines and domains, metamodern psychology. Metamodern leadership theory is already there's books on that, <clears throat> and so yeah, I wouldn't see necessarily metamodernism at all competing with integral theory. I would see integral theory competing with other metamodern theories. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I would say. Um, right. And so now the degree to which metamodernism as a term becomes used, like integral theory has been used as a term, mm. then you're then you start to have a problem. It would be like someone trying to put a trademark after the Renaissance. <laughs> right like uh which of course happens <laughs> these days <laughs> but uh the point being that this is a historical epoch in which we need to reference our self-understanding uh not try to claim some kind of uh theoretical um uh brand as it were yes. um, which is one of the ways to critique uh what became what became of integral theory um and so, yeah, so there's not, it's not about a competition with metamodernism. You can't compete with metamodernism. It's a historical period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would be like living in, uh, you know, trying to compete with the Industrial Revolution <laughs> in Dickens, yeah. in Dickens, uh, you know, Dickens, England. Right. Uh, right. You know, you're you're in it, and the question is how to how to how to theorize with it, about it, on it, and of course, if you're aware of the water you're swimming, and then you can make appropriate moves right so there's seth abram seth seth abramson who's a very important metamodern thinker and journalist you know he characterized the trump campaign as a metamodern campaign and i would agree with him mm. um, now it's not integral <laughs> right i mean it's the opposite yeah. but in fact it's it's leveraging a kind of strange self-awareness about our historical moment um mm. and so again the more you become aware of the anthropocene the nature of the metamodern historical moment, your the kind of skillful means changes mm. past it. Mm. Nice, yeah, and and so you know we find ourselves then you know in a time between worlds, as you say, which I think is a very beautiful and provocative image in how it has the potential to call us forth as individuals, you know, with a degree of responsibility, um, and in service of this sort of aim towards reconstruction you published a paper recently i think in the integral review yeah and um 
the paper is called Love in a Time Between Worlds on the Metamodern Return to a Metaphysics of Eros. And uh, for various reasons, uh, some of which, you know, due to guests we've had on the show, like Rob Berbea, uh, this was extremely provocative to me and beautiful and like just inspiring and, and put a lot of things together. And, and I'm hoping to spend most of the rest of the show just kind of like exploring this particular movement of reconstruction that is sort of on the table in the metamodern era as we kind of move more fully into it. And so to kind of break open that discussion, uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, why does this historical moment of uh, metamodernism, as well as the kind of the geological moment of the Anthropocene, demand a new metaphysics? And how do we understand that demand? Like, why, what, For most people, metaphysics seems like the least relevant thing, you know? And so why is it actually the case that it, 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 it's very important? Right. I mean, and in fact, some forms of metaphysics and the way most people use the term metaphysics, uh, it would be totally relevant. I mean, when people use the term metaphysics pejoratively, especially if you're a modernist or a postmodernist, you will essentially be talking about uh, pre-modern metaphysics, right? You'll be talking about how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin and, you know, witches and burning witches because of the beliefs in spirits. And, and so there's been, it's just worth saying, and again, honoring the postmodern and the modern moments here, mm. that there's been a long legacy of bad metaphysics. And of course, now you go to the metaphysical section of a, of a bookstore <laughs> um, and you see probably some of the worst books although you'll also see some of the best books right mm -hmm. so it's like this it's like this it's a it's a complex topic philosophically and uh you know i don't want to get into the whole history of it but i want to what i want to say is that we are actually entering a time when it's going to be necessary to be begin speculating and reframing about the most basic assumptions of our of our world and which means we need to rethink what is the nature of the human what is the nature of the material world that we live in. Um, uh, and uh, you can call them what you will, but for a long time, those types of basic foundational questions have been called metaphysical. Um, and so just to take an example, I mentioned uh, Jason Moore's book, Capitalism and the Web of Life. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he ends up doing a kind of metaphysics, even though he's technically kind of like a neo-Marxist uh, ecologist. Um, and historian of the capitalist world system, he ends up having to do metaphysics because uh, when you look at the way large social systems, especially commodity production systems, uh, relate to nature, um, you realize that it's not a relationship of like humans live in nature and kind of like humans live in ecosystems. It's actually not technically true. Ecosystems also live within human constructions. Mm -hmm and live within human frameworks. So there's this, what he calls a kind of double internality where yes, the human is in the ecosystem. The human is in the biosphere, human in nature, but you also have nature in human or nature as shaped by contained by human intervention. Now that was a pattern that was fine when the capitalist world system only kind of was in, in Europe. Mm. 
But as soon as you reach the late uh, 1800s and into the 20th century, you start to get a world system and commodity production kind of megastructure that is global in its nature, which means that there is no nature outside of human frameworks anymore. So now you have the double internality ontologized, which is to say that in a very real way, nature is within the human mm. and the human lives within nature. And that's a metaphysical reframing we need to get because it means there's no externalities. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it means that we're not alien from nature. We are actually holding nature within our ideas and practices. Um, and that is important. And it's it's has always been true, and yet with the pivot into the Anthropocene and the emergence of metamodern reflectivity on the modern, you have an awareness of it for the first time, I believe, which is a double internality. Um, and uh, and so that's an example of a basic metaphysical issue of subject object. Mm. What's more primary, mm. the human or the or the natural world? <laughs> and in fact, they're they're inter included within one another. Um, uh, and that's a framework shift that has, again, self-understanding mm. and practical uh, action-oriented implications. Yes. So, yeah. So, I'll pause. Well, so yeah, and and I mean, it's it's this is such rich territory, and yet I think it also demands a kind of slowness of approach for the reasons that you laid out. Right, that people have kind of preconceived notions and sort of problematic relationships with the very idea of metaphysics. And yet, I think what you point out in the essay that was persuasive to me is that there's a way in which our historical moment is kind of forcing us to re-engage with this question. You know, you said something like modernity sought to rectify this problem of pre-modern metaphysics by, by turning to science alone. And yet, as time unfolded, the vacuum created by the absence of metaphysics continued to expand. And now the absence of metaphysics is creating new and more dangerous problems. And, and I was already kind of on the same wavelength, you know, personally speaking. Um, but I, I I think that it might be useful to try to just say why that is the case. Like, what, can, it, you know, um, what got you to the point of persuading you that, yeah, like, you know, we're, we're shifting into a new moment when we actually need, actually need a new metaphysics to kind of uh, escape some problems. Like, what are the problems that a new metaphysics would help us escape? That we're seeing play out, and and uh, yeah, let's let's kind of dive into that piece a little bit more. Totally. I mean, it was it was a few things. In fact, it was it was mostly my work in psychology and education. Actually, uh, the practice of education and looking at humans, not just sophisticated adult humans, let alone like high achieving adult humans. Um, but in fact, looking at children and adolescents and how they think and, and act, um, and especially the responsibility one has as an educator in how to uh, kind of like inform them and, and help them. Uh, in fact, there's a metaphysical backdrop to, uh, to education almost by necessity. Um, and so that's the thing is that modernity escaped pre-modern metaphysics. Um, put in its place a kind of sanitized scientific metaphysics mm. and 
then tried to do a lot of things that humans had been doing for years. I mean, for years, for for as long as they've been doing it, based on religious metaphysics. Um, and they tried to do those same things with this kind of sanitized, washed down, kind of scientific, materialistic metaphysics. And so, uh, education is an example of one of those practices that. Uh, if you don't have an overarching model of what the universe is and what the nature of the human is, uh, you end up providing one by default mm -hmm. because, because that is in essence how the mind develops. It, it grows into a story about itself and its relation to the world. And that story can be more or less wrong uh, or it can be more or less accurate, more or less expansive, etc. And so when you look at the transition out of and the separation of church and state and the founding of the public schools as we know them. You're moving away from a religious-based education for good reason, right? <laughs> Modernity had all the best intentions and actually made some social justice moves in this turn away from traditional forms of metaphysically and religiously-based education. In its place, we put nationalistically-oriented mm. education, right? Now, we know that nationalism uh, and its relationship to uh, certain forms of economic organization, especially capitalism, you know, has resulted in some not so great stuff. You know, arguably as bad or worse than what the religious <laughs> pre-modern things did were the modern uh, uh, world wars, which were fought uh, by people educated in public schools and brought into extreme nationalistic and racist sentiments. Mm. And so things like nationalistic essentialism and race essentialism and certain forms of economic uh, and uh, yeah, basically economic speculation, uh, these are metaphysics by another name. And so Charles Sanders Peirce, who features prominently in this paper, he always used to say, listen, because he was surrounded by materialistic scientists, he's like, listen, man, you either, you either do metaphysics consciously mm. <laughs> or, and well, or you do it unconsciously and poorly. Mm. Um, and so we need to start to, because the con because we have so much power technologically and because exactly because we're in the process of rebuilding civilization and transitioning into something new, we need to make sure that we we're doing metaphysics with a great deal of self-reflection and awareness in this moment, um, mm. uh, because we will have the, we will have the ability to based on what we think humans are, <laughs> shape them in profound ways that are basically unprecedented, yes. um, which we're already, which we're already beginning to do. And this is what you see with schooling, yes. right? So depending on, but depending on your model of what the nature of the human is, you build the classroom around it. And uh, so this is why Waldorf education is so interesting to me because uh, here you have an education based fundamentally on a metaphysical kind of story. I'll call it a story in the best sense, a metaphysical story, um, just like evolution is a story, <laughs> right? And the theory of relativity is a story. So in that sense, it's a serious story. Um, the, the metaphysics behind the Waldorf schools have to do with the nature of the soul, the human soul, the nature of cosmological evolution, the nature of transpersonal forces mm. that surround the human at different stages of development. And of course, the nature of the imagination and the human interiority, consciousness itself. And so if you value those things in your story about the human, then you will build education around them. Mm. If you have a story about the human that says, actually, you know, things like love and things like excitement and curiosity, these are, actually, 
our best story about those things are that they are excretions, uh, kind of like, you know, burps or bowel movements from your brain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so we will engage them in the classroom. But in fact, if we really look at it under a microscope, like sometimes literally under a microscope, we will disenchant the entire phenomenon Mm. and get back to the real, get back to the real truth of what you are as a human, which is kind of a very fancy evolved ape, which is ultimately matter in motion. Uh, And so that the values and the norms and all of these things are some kind of strange illusion and there's no reality, there's no reality to them. Whereas I'm proposing a metaphysics that's a all quadrant realist metaphysics, which is to say that things like morality and value and love have an ontic truth or an alethic truth, uh, which is to say they're there in the same way that this table is there and that my genes are there. Um, uh, and again, I think we need to start to say these things explicitly yeah. uh, because so many people are saying the opposite explicitly and being applauded. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as if and and so there's something interesting about uh the applause we give to those people who disenchant the universe and it's a distinctly modern emotional sentiment which is akin to a kind of existentialism mm. that sees the virtue of sees the virtue of science being in its ability to stare at the meaninglessness of the material universe mm. the courage the kind of and this is the, again the the kind of it, it, there's something ennobling yeah. about modernity in its overcoming of the fantasy life of the pre-modern metaphysics saying no man like look starkly at the harsh reality that there is no meaning you know and and so we're still doing that we're still we're beating the dead horse of the pre-modern metaphysics and we are nobly kind of stoically looking at a meaningless universe and yet uh contradicting ourselves every time we hug our wife or um, get excited and get excited and passioned by a beautiful landscape. Uh, we forget that we forget that scientific story. We were so convinced by that this stuff is actually meaningless. So there's a kind of, uh, there's a hypocrisy at the core of the reductionistic modern worldview, which the meta modern says in almost humorous way, we don't know. <laughs> yes. There's a, there's a lot of neurological stuff going on. Right. And obviously, and obviously there's other stuff going on. So that the kind of, uh, the, the epistemic humility reemerges when you get over the triumphant modern and the tragic postmodern, you get into the post-tragic, uh, meta-modern, which has a certain irony about even the most serious, even the most serious metaphysical speculations about the nature of the human soul we need to probably end with some kind of joke. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's very important, you know, in Hebrew mysticism, you know, like ancient texts, we're seeing the highest form of perception, which can perceive paradox as laughter. Right. And that's a, that's kind of a metamodern sentiment from, you know, like BC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so again, it's, it's not about reifying a, new version of pre-modern metaphysics so it's 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 in essence not about you know returning to christ or returning to aristotle or plato or something like that or even to the you know to to the pre-socratics um it's about really creating a new vision of what the human is and like i said the anthropocene gives us hints about that and that double internality gives us hints Mm -hmm. about that i'm living in nature and yet I am also all of nature mm-hmm. at every level 
at every level of my metabolism, I interface with a form of the natural world. So the microcosm, macrocosm theme, which is to say the, the mirroring or the embodiment in the human microcosm of the full structure of the macrocosmic universe. This is a theme you find mm. in pre-modern metaphysics, mm. um, which uh, is worth resuscitating mm. um, in, in the metamodern metaphysics mm. in a much more mm. complex way. And what this says is that the transpersonal forces that drive evolution live within us. Yes. Um, yeah. And in my paper, I describe arrows yeah, as one of yeah. them. And so so the, the very thing that pushes the bud out of the yes. ground and makes it sprout into a flower, the kind of etheric arrows of the plant or the kind of beautiful kind of deer leaping across a stone wall in pursuit like during mating season that's bringing these two deer together to create a new deer uh, out of pure instinct um you know uh the kind of the binding and self-organizing and self-transcending forces of nature that are described in chaos theory and Nonlinear systems dynamics. Uh, you know, we can label many of these things as Plato would, <laughs> where he allowed, and say basically, this is an, er an erotic mm. or mm. A, a form of evolutionary love, mm. um, and uh, not random chance and mutation. Although that mm. is happening, undoubtedly. Mm. <laughs> so again, it's not about saying that the modern view is wrong. No, the modern view is true but partial. Mm. Um, and then the postmodern critique of the simple neo-Darwinian synthesis. Also, we leverage, we worry about biological determinism, we worry about social justice issue outside of any biological constraint. And then we reintegrate with the metamodern thought, mm. you know, which is that actually, you know, we're allowed to, to believe that we are suffused with the forces yes. of nature. Uh, again, yes. um, uh, this is not a superstitious thought. Um, this is in fact uh, a truth. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I, I talk about the powder keg of the limbic system in this paper, right? And that is the, you know, there's billions of years of evolutionary energy within your yeah. nervous system. And uh, yeah, so again, back to responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I want to spend time kind of unpacking this sort of proposed reconstructive metaphysics and and sort of what it might afford us if we decide that or if we choose to entertain it at least um and before i do that i want to sort of double click on something that you said just before this uh, around sort of like as i understand it the the inevitability of metaphysics right and so i think when people uh, kind of scoff at met the idea of metaphysics or they don't quite grok the relevance of it um they they have failed to in, in most cases understand that it is inevitable that we make sort of metaphysical claims on reality like there's no escape from it right like we can pretend that science and and that sort of worldview is somehow apart from metaphysical claims but if we really spend some time in that uncomfortable position of 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 maybe that's not the case and maybe we can see something different then it does become or it seems to become clear that there's no neutral place to stand and so i i just really want to like emphasize that this is not like you know something that we're doing on top of reality sort of it's like it's something that we can't help but do so we might as well do it in a way that might actually help us survive this 
historical moment and this geological moment that we previously described. And so there's a kind of like, um, almost like instrumentalism that I feel when I like read your paper and consider these questions. It's like, how, what, what kind of metaphysics do we want to create that can build a more beautiful future for humanity? Right. And so like, I think what, what might be interesting to do before we kind of, uh, or, or oh, well, I'll let you, I'll let you, Zach, kind of decide on where to take this. But I'd love to s- unpack the, the your proposed metaphysics, and in particular, kind of start maybe with this idea of like, what does a new metaphysics perhaps afford us? Like, what do we get access to if we start to vector towards some kind of metaphysical claim on reality? Mm. Right. Yeah, I'm happy to go in that direction. Uh, I'll speak a little bit first about what you said to, to like double click your double click on, on the uh, on the everyday nature and inescapability of always already doing metaphysics. And this is just kind of the case. I think probably the best way it's put was by James Fowler, where I think he was pulling from Paul Tillich. Uh, James Fowler was a developmental psychologist, and so he looked at the development of people's religious uh, and metaphysical beliefs, essentially. So he looked at the development of them, and he talked about his research being about people's conceptions of their ultimate environment, capital U, capital E, ultimate Mm -hmm. environment, which is to say, what is the largest possible context that you tell you, that you you position yourself within, right? What is kind of, if you're and he would ask people literally <laughs> like he, and that's the thing is, you know, okay, well, why do you value this? You, you know, why do you believe this, et cetera? And you drill down and you drill down and you get to some kind of bedrock of account of what's the world. Why do you do what you do? Uh, and that notion of the ultimate environment is again, inescapable, but there are periods in development, both of the individual and cultural. Uh, where you become, in a sense, uh, avoidant of addressing those questions. Mm. Uh, and it, there are many, I, I don't know exactly why this happens. I think some of it has to do with the the ego, um, which is to say in the psychological, technical sense of the self-organization of the personality actually needs to uh, defend itself against uh, the frightening uh, and sometimes great uncertainty that arises mm. if you start to explore metaphysical questions without the right mm. support, right? Um, and so many people were, for example, in college, like do some acid and have some deep conversations and like think about this stuff, get freaked out, and then basically never really want to think about it again. Um, and uh, that happens uh, quite often, actually. And other people never really want to think about it. Uh, they want to be told what to think about it, and that's fine. Uh, if you get it from the right place, <laughs> but if you, if you get it, but, but, you know, but if you get it from comic books or movies right. or, you know, that's the thing is that this ultimate environment is an imaginal exercise. It's creation of almost fantasy. And so there's a way in which we're piecing together all the time and carrying around with us this picture of our ultimate environment. And some people carry some huge, vast, profound, emotionally significant, like deep, ultimate environment and so they're like walking around with it and other people carry this like Mm. shallow narrow you know narrow kind of self-centered uh kind of vision of what the world is all about and in fact wouldn't even know how to answer that Mm. question 
And so there's this right great span or great range of the way people hold their ultimate environments. Um, and explicit discussion of it actually makes the ultimate environment and your relationship to it um, uh, hmm. kind of better. Like so, and this I'll transition now. Metaphysics is actually not some canonical set of definitive statements about mm. what the world is. That's why I mean that's it's like a book, you know, Aristotle's Metaphysics and the statements within the metaphysics. Like literally, mm. there's a book. But <laughs> what I mean by metaphysics, what I mean by metaphysics is actually a practice. Mm. You actually practice metaphysics. Yes. You, you don't. You don't kind of believe metaphysics. Uh, you you do you practice metaphysics and. What I mean by that is to actively engage in the exploration and revision of your stories about the ultimate environment and your and your position within it. Um, and so it's interesting that, in fact, metaphysical data is, and I write about this, metaphysical data is easier to get than scientific data. Like you need a microscope mm. or a telescope or a hydron collider to get scientific data. For metaphysical data, you just need to slow down and pay attention to what's going on around you and especially the nature of the values and the embodiment of your emotion in space mm. um, so the return to metaphysics also means a return to the the body as a mode of knowing um, and so when you when you look at metaphysics as, and the practitioners of metaphysics including the pre-modern practitioners there's always this esoteric strain of those people who are doing what I call in the paper participatory metaphysics, mm. <laughs> right? And so this, this has to do with, uh, again, if we know because science tells us that the forces of nature live within us, right? That the very thing that grows the tree and that brought the stars together, right? Hold my organs together <laughs> and pump my blood mm. and actually are creating these thoughts. Mm. Like we know that from what science tells us actually. So that's interesting. That's scientific mm. metaphysics, collection, collection of statements, we can use the scientific metaphysics to leverage certain practices to begin seeing if that's true, mm -hmm. a kind of participatory metaphysics. Um, and so this gets beyond just the exploration of self through meditation and into the exploration of the alethic truths and the kind of structures of the archetypal world that we're, na that we're navigating. Um, and uh, so in a sense, the request is not to kind of read some book on metaphysics and just start to believe that stuff. Like that's not actually the solution. What we're looking for is changes in the nature of practice that actually orient to metaphysical realities. Mm -hmm. And so an example of this is of course, pre-modern mm -hmm. ritual, right? Like so much of the economic activity of these ancient cities <laughs> revolved around uh, metaphysical practices practices that had to do with relating to large realities that they thought were the most fundamental uh, and that were both a part of themselves and a part of the world. Uh, and so I'm not saying we should do, you know, uh, have like, you know, Dionysian temples and Athenian, mm -hmm. like I'm not proposing that there's a, a return to pre-modern forms of mm -hmm. ritual, but what I am proposing is that, you know, we are ritualizing consumption and we're ritualizing violence and we're ritualizing shaming and scapegoating. And so we're ritualizing. Right. <laughs> Uh, the question is, why not ritualize around reality instead of ritualizing around our kind of illusions about ourselves um, that are kind of spiraling out of control as the wheels come off mm. the capitalist world system? And so it's really a return to reality. And it's it's not so much about what's the metaphysics that 
is going to create a more beautiful future because it's not up to us what the metaphysical truth is. <laughs> That's the other thing. Like, Peirce defined reality as that which resists misinterpretation. And so the, the trick of, of performative or participatory metaphysics is to find those forms of practice that allow you to test your metaphysical assumptions. Mm. Right? So a good, way to, a good way to do this is to explore the realm of love and human relationships. And what you'll find is that you can smack up against realities that are as hard as a brick wall. Um, and uh, that, in fact, the human emotion and the strength that you can find in certain forms of relationship and personality, uh, it, when, you, when you begin to relate to them as if they're as real and become their own, uh, become to take on a, a power and a significance. So the metamodern return to metaphysics also means a repositioning of the human in the natural world. Um, and so the, the postmodern tragic moment would like to say that actually we are, you know, like ignoble, bad kind of the monkeys tragically destroying the earth. Um, you know, the metamodern needs to return to almost a kind of anthropocentrism, like almost a kind of re-ennobling of the human's place in nature. Um, and that's because we are actually now responsible for what we know of as mm -hmm. nature. <laughs> Again, the, the Anthropocene. So we need to start taking ourselves as seriously as we need to, to, to hold the responsibility that we have now as ushering in this Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's like, if, if we're all matter in motion, let's say, and in fact, you only live once, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, how, how do you act now if we're not matter in motion and values matter and perhaps you live multiple times mm. <laughs> and, and, uh, right. You start to take life a little bit more seriously. There are consequences to your actions. So again, another reason metaphysics is essential is because it's tied into our most foundational ethical beliefs, right? If you return to our neuroscientific, uh, straw man, who was saying basically that you know love and all these things are excretions of the brain. He would also say your choices are excretions right. of the brain. Um, uh, and so again, we are now in a time of history when some of the most respected and well-funded scientists are arguing against free will, um, and uh, so that has that matters, you know. Uh, again, because it it smacks of hypocrisy, um, but because. By that, I mean that we'll try to live with that. Try to live as if you're not making your choices. Try to run a legal system uh, as if people aren't accountable for their actions and their brains made them do it. Um, and so, again, we're, we don't even know how to think about some of these problems anymore because of the soup of confusing scientific findings that we're swimming in and the untested, unexamined, implicit, inarticulate metaphysics and ultimate environments that we're carrying around with ourselves. Yes. Um, you know, so it's kind of like it's if you're imagine a beautiful kind of family dinner with some scientist, and he's just like in the moment and loving his whole family situation, and the sun is setting, and the, he sips the wine, and it's this gorgeous human moment. Um, and then you remind him, oh yeah, but your ultimate environment actually says that this is all just basically meaningless. Mm. <laughs> like yeah, it, there's a huge disconnect there, and so we need to be able to explain the meanings of our lives and give sense to our deaths and give sense to our noble ethical actions and to our tragedies and pathologies. We need to make sense of these things. Um, and that requires making claims about the nature of reality 
that move, you know, beyond simple reductionistic yes. imperial, you know, stories. It doesn't contradict them. It doesn't contradict them. <laughs> Those are true, but they're partial, and we can't be seduced into simplistic uh, narratives. Nice. Yeah, and, and so I, th- I think this idea of like making claims, metaphysical claims, and then testing them in your own sort of experience is really fascinating, and. You know, I'd be curious to hear you uh, share, like, what are some of the claims that you're making in your paper that perhaps people can then take and explore in their own subjectivity and see, like, do they hold up, you know, if we're kind of using that way of seeing what metaphysics are or is? Totally. Yeah, I mean, there's, in, in a sense, the, the paper touches on just one kind of corner of the new metaphysics. Uh, and it's the corner that has to do with arrows in particular. So you could, you could see it as the, maybe the cornerstone, but in fact, there are, there are many pieces of any mm. metaphysical story. And, uh, you know, the ones I discuss here have to do with the, the nature of human relationship and the reality of relationship, the reality of intersubjectivity and, intimacy, which is to say, ultimately, the reality of human love, and redescribing human love as a ontological reality, not as a cultural construction or kind of epiphenomenon of evolution and matter. Um, And so one of the implications there is that, in fact, the nervous system itself is built to love, that we are, in a sense, lovers. Now, of course, we're many other things. Um, and you could argue that sometimes what we appear to be is actually a result of having distorted this more basic, kind of almost biologically ingrained disposition mm-hmm. to move into conditions of closeness, conditions of sharing, right? To create intimacy, to create new complexities and to to create situations in which myself and others come together to to do something beyond ourselves right so this is the erotic is the bringing mm. forth through merger something something new and so you know one implication here would be that um zero sum games when you play them will lead to destruction non-zero-sum games, which is to say working to find win-win solutions, will always create a better playing field in which more win-win solutions are mm-hmm. able to be found. Right. So this is kind of an argument in favor of leaning on mm-hmm. the reality of love. Right. Trusting that by opting out of the zero-sum game uh, and choosing to play perhaps what appears to be a less advantageous <laughs> uh, non-zero-sum game or, or actual collaboration, which involves vulnerability, which involves risk and trust, um, that this will in the long run create better realities. Uh, you know, Right now, we actually have a narrative about the nature of the universe. So part of our story about this ultimate environment, the kind of everyday cultural story, the one you read like in the New York Times or something, for example, uh, this is a story that says actually competition that 
zero-sum games are what drive evolution, period. <laughs> uh, there's an alternative story about evolution, which Peter Kropotkin told long ago uh, in, in Darwinian times, uh, you know, essentially uh, mutual aid or collaboration or, in my language, kind of these modes and methods of eros in the natural world are what drive evolution. So these are two competing narratives that are, are actually both true. Um, what I'm suggesting is that the one transcends and includes the other, that these forms of dynamic and emergent synthesis in the natural world and in the human world are actually the stage upon which competition can take place at all. Right? So think about a football team. The two teams have to love one another and have a certain unity with each other before they can compete. Um, you know, the animal needs to be held together as an organism, right? Its organs need to quote, love each other and be bound into a higher level unity for that organism to then compete with another organism. So there's a basic mm -hmm. unity of things and a holding togetherness and an, an emerging kind of moving forwardness. <laughs> and it, it's important to be actually a little bit, vague with big metaphysical conceptions like this. I would also be vague if you asked me to talk about the soul, for example. <laughs> right? The, the whole point is that these are parts mm. of our broadest kind of imaginal containers. And what it means to value love and see it as an ontological reality, actually test the ontological reality of love, would be to, again, tell a different story about how we got to be here and what the most effective forms of intervention and action in the universe are. Um, if love is just as real as competition, and in fact, maybe more real, <laughs> then you should be more successful if you act out of love. Mm. So this is actually like you out, you outperform in competition by finding deeper spaces of love. And this is true in the competitive world, right? Those teams which succeed, those countries which succeed are those that find ways to have non-coerced, cooperative, kind of erotic mergers mm -hmm. and not sexual. I don't mean that. What I mean is like deeply emotionally invested and kind of tapping that powder keg of the limbic system for mm -hmm. one another in collaboration to do something. Uh, the more you can find love, actually, the better you will compete. But if you ultimately find that love, you will think about the, the kind of playing field on which this competition is taking place, right? You will expand, you will expand the love to include the competitor. And this is what's done in martial arts often, right? It's the idea that you're the person you're competing about is ultimately your greatest lover and friend, <laughs> right? And so this is a very meta modern, like transcending of this seeming conflict between the mm. zero sum and the non zero sum is in fact, even in, it, it, the holding the full space of love, you can have a space of competition within mm. within love. Um, and so again, this is the reframing makes it makes the world look different, and then you will act different. And now, uh, if you meet with uh, failure by coming with love, um, you know, document that and get back to me, <laughs> and like send send me send me an email send me an email. But, uh, you know, if you understand what I'm saying, I think, it, uh, then it will be hard to, uh, even the categories like failure start to not make as much sense. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And then again, the death is another thing. 
that is one of those unavoidable metaphysical issues, death, birth, sleep, uh, even just waking awareness. If you're really mm. conscious of it, these are metaphysical things we live with all the time. And, uh, it, again, so living one's life in relation to one's own death is another way of thinking about what it means to practice metaphysics. Um, mm. Yeah. And so I think the invitation here, as I understand it to a certain degree is, is, you know, there's this idea that perhaps love is primary, like one of the primary ontological realities of what it means to be human. And, you know, what would it be like to weave that story into your life? Like run the experiment, actually like pretend or act as if that is your ultimate environment for a time and see what that does in a sense, like run the experiment and play with that way of seeing what a human being is and who you are. And then just sort of see what happens. I mean, like, what are we, what are we orienting to? Like, how do we, what, what, what do we look to uh, as the results of such experiments that help us kind of uh, orient ourselves? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one way to think about the experiment. But I mean, understand that there's, you're going to have a story about how it works in any case. Yeah. So it's not like you don't already have a story about how relationships work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. and, and typically, like I said, the, the one we're given by our culture is one, like, you know, competition is how it works. This is how you get the best results, competition. Um, and we put little kids in like tremendously competitive contexts based on that belief, which is kind of this weird amalgam of kind of like biology and kind of exploitative capitalism, this idea that competition drives it. So now that has become a default assumption and, and it structures the whole social system, which means that to take a different assumption as the basis of your action uh, puts you at odds with the existing kind of structures. Um, and uh, so what that actually means is that doing experiments with love when you're surrounded by hate uh, uh, it can be uh, interesting to say the least. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's, it, success, uh, it needs to be defined in a very different way. So I'm not saying like some strange new age thing of you'll become rich if you just lead with love or mm -hmm. nor, you know, nor am I saying that you will become successful in some way that you're imagining right now, career wise or relationship wise or, or any of these things. In fact, the claim is that you will be more in touch with reality mm. and in a reality avoidant culture, that's actually a little bit dangerous and an odd position. Now it can be a powerful position because you can see things other people don't think you're in touch with reality and it could make you more strategically kind of positioned. <laughs> um, but it, it may or may not do that. Uh, um, it may make you realize that you're living in a very tragic situation, for example, and that most of the people around you are unable to receive the fullness of your love, for example, mm -hmm. um, or that you have a job in which were you to lead with love, you'd be fired. For example. Mm. And so now does that mean that love is not real? <laughs> mm. No, actually it means the opposite. Um, uh, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an invitation to, it's an invitation to, to reality. And to kind of step outside many of the given cultural containers um, uh, and to enter some kind of 
uh, more intimate relationship with yourself and with other people. Um, mm -hmm. And, but of mm -hmm. course there are other, there are other metaphysical suppositions aside from this one. You know? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and so there are many other ways to, to do experiments. This, this one in particular I'm recommending precisely because it is politically um, uh, agitated, agitative, agitative, <laughs> right. like to that, that this is actually right now, I think the key move politically to make is mm. one of actually almost naive uh, and innocent and self-sacrificial uh, love mm. uh, in, in, in the face of, so much of what uh is being thrown around and you have to um again the metamodern one of the things that characterizes metamodern is this, that they're going to laugh at you <laughs> this is one of the things that you know you're a metamodernist if what you say seems absurd and like mm -hmm. almost like they're going to laugh at you uh and the uh, and if you are in a sense giving up on the old notions of success and willing to fail by the conventions put forward by modernity and postmodernity, now you're also willing to succeed by them uh, but you're 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 willing to fail, and yes. so the the move of love is not often the conquering move. Um, the The move of love often wins in the long in the long run, um, and uh, so yeah. So there's this there's this kind of almost paradoxical uh, thing that needs to be done in our historical moment, um, which is to to kind of lose face together, everyone. Together. <laughs> um, right. And, and then be able to at seeing that we all are going to lose face. Like we're all in the Anthropocene. Yes. Right? Um, uh, you know, so that there needs to be a new, uh, you know, the meaning of Renaissance again, it's like, uh, nascence, the newness, the renewness, <laughs> the renewal, uh, the making new again of relationship. Um, mm. And again, like I said, vulnerability and intimacy are the stuff of, of love and eros. And so, you know, you know, you're in, for example, uh, in a relationship like that, um, you know, when, when that level of, of trust uh, is tangible. Um, so again, trust would be something. <laughs> that what is trust is that real in the way for example like a chemical bond is real like a chemical bond is like you can establish it and actually measure its strength and determine how to break it and, and other things like but it's there like as part of the kind of furniture or architecture of the basic kind of mineral kingdom the chemistry of it yes. so the question is 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 trust as real for example as a chemical bond mm. um, and is the breaking of trust Therefore, even though it's just words, <laughs> is the breaking of trust uh, somehow a rip in some very real fabric of the social world? Um, so again, it's you know sometimes we act as if our the things we do behind closed doors with the people that matter most to us don't matter, when in fact it's the opposite, mm. <laughs> right? Sometimes we act as if the the toes we step on as we're reaching towards our success um, don't matter. It's the success that matters, when in fact it could be. The opposite of what I'm saying about trust and love is true. Um, that you're breaking all of these <laughs> very real bonds and they're invisible so you can't see them. Yes. Um, but it's the akin of, it's the equivalent of like, I don't know, you know fragmenting your own, own DNA by being exposed to toxins or something. You know, that yeah. there's a, there, are re, there are repercussions 
to being in violation of the moral structure of the universe. And uh, again, we, if we enter the Anthropocene under the belief that the universe has no moral structure, uh, we're in for it. Mm. You know, this is this is this is actually precisely the time when we need to begin to reflect on what is the moral structure of the universe. We have we have the biosphere of the Earth in our hands. What ought we do with it? Uh, Beautiful. And uh, you know, these are that's a metaphysical ethical question and uh, love between humans, love between humans and the natural world, the love of nature. Right, the bond and the erotic merger between my nervous system and the sunset. Uh, what are the value of these things, um, and are they as valuable, as real, as the tangible commodities? Um, yes, it's interesting. You know, and it's interesting. Like, you know, this category of fictitious capital, which is basically most of the capital, uh, is you know numbers in computers in the kind of ether, as it were. And yet that stuff is held as more real mm. often mm -hmm. in terms of the, the actions that are taken at kind of geopolitical scale in the service of fictitious capital. Um, when in fact these concrete bounds of and binds and kind of of trust and love at the, at the street level um, are being shattered um, mm. for the sake of another type of metaphysical illusion. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so it's about in a sense returning to these simple uh, truths um, and knowing that some of the most intimate details of our lives the trust and the love between family and, the, and friends and colleagues that, th that there's a reality to this you know kind of quote private or hidden world the kind of world that modernity puts off stage and the world that post-modernity kind of fetishizes and makes public in an inappropriate way Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the unseen act of goodness and trust uh, is real. Yes. You don't need to put it on Facebook. You don't need to put it on Facebook and make it, you know, virtue signaling public act. That that's a sign that you don't actually believe in the structure of the moral universe. Um, that you need to display virtue to others through some mediated context to win approval. Um, you know, what happens if that ability to display one's virtue is taken from you? Do you still act? virtuously um, do you act without virtue in order to appear virtuous just because it's possible mm -hmm. and so are these there are these ways that we need to reconfigure our orientations and narratives about our ultimate environment and the way we relate to it and i believe things like trust and love are part of the fabric of this ultimate environment it's part of what i move through the same way i move through a yeah. city street or or the or the natural world with the trees and things i'm i live in a world inhabited by psychological reality love trust yes. you know but also fear fear hate sorrow i mean these are re real <laughs> like uh you know you can be possessed by hate <laughs> for example yes. and uh it, it happens yeah yeah and i think yeah. what um is coming up for me is you know i've been playing with this kind of metaphysical experimentation for much of the last year uh with the work of Rob Berbea, who I mentioned, and uh, it's a very playful approach to kind of DIY constructing your own metaphysics and your own metaphysical reality. And what I notice is that as I become more confident in that kind of experimentation, that it really does give me an added dimension of strength to take responsibility 
in this time of the Anthropocene, like this very difficult and challenging time, if we actually look at it straight in the straight on, right? Like if we actually reckon with the burden of being alive at this time, like I, it seems increasingly like you need some kind of metaphysical support system to actually do the work that's being called for now. And I don't, yeah, I just, it's been so, it's just been so nourishing and so kind of um, helpful to have access to these, as you say, like hidden dimensions of the human being just to not lose courage and not, and, and to not be swept aside by, the forces of capital and the kind of uh, gravity uh, inertia of our civilization right now. And so I think that for those of us who deeply care about the world and the fate of the world, like this is well worth your time to kind of like learn how to pick up these ways of seeing, learn how to play in these waters such that they can embolden you to do what you know is, is good, true, and beautiful. Yes. I mean, that's in a sense, I mean, like you were saying, there's a certain, like when you read the paper, it occurred to you that this is actually just useful, that like we need this stuff <laughs> that like it, like for yeah. the work, like for people to keep going to their jobs and like go to the grocery store and like fulfilling their obligations and these things, we, we need a new story about our ultimate environment because, uh, because we need essentially to be, in, in, as I've said, ennobled. We need to find the nobility in our humanity again. Um, and that means that trusting that trust is real, <laughs> you know, and uh, valuing value. Um, and so there's a certain ambivalent. There's like, there's like an ambivalence or an um, afterthought or second thought that accompanies so many of the actions that the modern and postmodern world are made up of. And this is that thought that, yes, I'm acting in light of this moral principle, but, but maybe it's not actually mm. true. <laughs> you know, that, that's there. Um, and that's part of the reflectivity of modernity and is, in fact, a good thing. And more people need to continue to have that reflectivity. You know? So it's like, would the Inquisition back <laughs> back in the day would someone in the inquisition have been like oh maybe this isn't exactly true about the witches mm. like uh that would have been good um and so that but that second thought also when taken into the extremes of postmodernity, uh becomes a kind of uh a paralysis mm. um, and a um you know a, a downplaying of the depth and significance of one's own life. Mm. And so in order to avoid the obligation uh, and in order to kind of step outside of uh, sometimes tragedy and other things, um, we will just tell a much simpler story and a much more, uh, you know, much less challenging uh, story. And that's understandable, but as, as you're saying, it's, it's going to create a certain kind of disease of behavior in which we are constantly doubting ourselves and constantly needing others approval for the things that we think are good or not. Mm. Right. Um, and so again, the example of social media is interesting, right? To, to what extent, um, you know, does the display of virtue on social media, 
um, take the place of the display of virtue before God, to use lack of a better mm. metaphor, right? Is it in fact precisely because we do not trust that our hidden acts of goodness matter that we must advertise that we're doing, mm. right? Um, and uh, which means that outside of the opportunity to advertise them, would you still act that way? And so it's very important to, to remember that relation is what you're saying. You actually, William James believed actually that religious beliefs and belief in God in particular uh, were just useful. Yeah. <laughs> like he, and I, I don't agree with this kind of, kind of pragmatist view of these things. I'm a realist. He was more of a anomalist, but he thought that these things are useful. They actually give you strength. They give you courage and you'll more often do what's, what's right. Now you can often, you can also, as the, again, the inquisition, remember, mm. <laughs> like you can also do what's, what's mm. wrong with these beliefs. Um, but if you hold them in a kind of a William Jamesy way as, 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 as reflective and as self-chosen, um, so, but the practicing allows you to begin to have conviction mm. and a, a meta modern metaphysical conviction, very different from a pre modern right. metaphysical conviction. Right. Right. <laughs> a a, a meta modern, a meta modern metaphysical conviction based on practice and experimentation, um, and of course, reflection and thought and, and dialogue and all of these things. Um, but we, we need this sense of, um, uh, you know, a kind of a humble conviction in these times of great confusion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and again, it's, if you don't know in very clear terms, what the nature of your ultimate environment is, it's very hard to know if the next step you're about to take is in the right direction. Uh, you know, you, there's a way in which being increasingly articulate about what matters to you most and the largest context in which you hold the significance of your actions and the greatest values to which you are committed, the more you can talk about those things, the more clear you'll be that this next step is appropriate. The less you have to look around mm. to others to see, is this the right step? Right? The less you can trust your internal compass, because what's your compass in relation to? It's in relation to a map or <laughs> or some story about the environment in which you're navigating. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's useful. It's ennobling. Um, and I believe necessary uh, for me, it's it, like, again, I'll mention death. I mean, this is something we need to be able to talk about, especially in a historical epoch and a geological epoch when there's going to be large scale extinction, um, uh, potentially of the human species, um, right? So the mortality of the species needs to be reckoned with and can only be reckoned with metaphysically unless you want to reckon with the mortality of the species uh, as a nihilist, right? Now, the mortality of the species isn't about navigating the transition to the Anthropocene. It's about the fact that all that is created dies. Mm. So the mortality of the species is just as inevitable a thought as the mortality of your individual life. Now, some people want to avoid mm. that thought, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? The kind of hyper-modernist, transhumanist vision of a life without death uh, exists. And again, another example of a kind of meta-modern uh, mm. speculation, um, a, a metaphysical postulate that it's mm. impossible or preferable, valuable. Um, so it's interesting that the, the reckoning with death, both at the individual level and at the level of the species, is but just another way of talking about psychological maturity. Uh, and a lot of what I'm talking about here is actually just a kind of psychological mm. maturity. 
where you're willing to think through in a rigorous way your most basic assumptions and the way that they relate to your life. Uh, and, uh, and again, living in relation to your own death is not morbid. Uh, it's, it's in fact just mature. And it means moving into a post-tragic relationship uh, to one's own existence. Um, mm-hmm. So grappling with the, the mortality of the species is another example of one of these things that forces us into a metaphysical position. It's the apocalypse, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, like this is a classic, meta, it's a classic metaphysical category. Um, and so we are going to be facing seemingly kind of apocalyptic, or at least they'll be made to appear apocalyptic by the news uh, scenarios as climate change and geopolitical instability increase. So the question of how the first world onlookers to a third world ecological catastrophe that kills millions of people. How, how will the first world process witnessing death at that scale? And what, you know, and what does a culture wide survivor's guilt mm. look like? And these are questions that are meta modern and have to do with the Anthropocene. And they're questions that we're not really asking. We'd rather bicker about other things than look at the, at the, at the, truth of the situation we're in. Um, now, there's a way out of that whole crisis of identity that could occur as the global crisis deepens, uh, and it's through embracing a new metaphysics, and specifically one of love, um, and potentially even one of self-sacrifice, um, and non-zero-sum gaming in the face of an opportunity to win the ultimate zero-sum game. Right, And so this is uh, these are like serious moments um and there's there's no i think there's no way out except to begin these deeper conversations again and uh again the the those people who bring coherence around these questions and begin to live a new type of life around new metaphysical practices um will be stepping into the future in a very different way uh Mm. well zach I, i i appreciate you deeply for kind of just bringing this subject up with such clarity and and force. I think it is, from my perspective, of vital importance. And I'm just so happy that uh, we could have this conversation and share it with the world and and hopefully invite more people into this larger conversation of of rebuilding, reconstructing, and discovering a new way forward for both us as individuals and the human collective. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. I I love these opportunities.